Genesis 14. Now, the first part that we looked at, Genesis 14, we kind of divided it into two battles, a physical battle and then we a spiritual battle, those two things. We've looked at that first Bible battle, the first war that was ever in history of, that we know about in the Bible, and we looked at all through that war and uh, the aggression of it, and we, we looked at all the collapse that took place of Sodom and Gomorrah and the capture of them and all those kinds of things and how that Abraham rounded up, you know, his servants and made an uh, army, small army out of them. And then uh, they took action uh, the, b- because he was his brother. Folks, we, we need to stand by our brothers and sisters. You, you say, uh, well, I'm a Democrat and they're a Republican or I'm a, I'm a socialist and they're a, uh, they're a communist or I'm whatever they are. Listen, if you're saved, you ought to be saved no matter what else is going on. I don't care what you're a member of. Saved people ought to stick with saved people. You all with me? So we know somebody that has to go to battle, then we ought to go to battle with them. And... I want to give you five things. I don't think I may have given you. If I did, I'd give them so fast you couldn't write them down. Write these five things down about Abraham's army from verse number 14 of Genesis 15. Just write them down. If you want to be in Abraham's army, first of all, you had to be born in his own house. What does that remind you of? Our first birth is the children of Adam. That makes us a loser. Our second birth is a child of God, that makes us a winner, right? So if you want to be in Abram's army, which is God's army, you have to be born in the house. In other words, you have to be born into the family. You you have to be born again. You got that? Number two, you have to know how to be armed if you're going into spiritual battle. We are to be armed and ready for battle. I'm not going to read these verses, but write them down. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. Write that down. But then I do want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, because this is just as important as Ephesians chapter 6, all right? 2 Corinthians chapter number 10. Are you there? Look at verse number 3. Are you looking at it? All right, I'm having trouble keeping up with my water tonight. I'm going to have to quit that getting drunk late in the evening, you know. And I'm kidding, don't go put that on something, all right? Um, But I want you to notice what he says here. Get this, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, that means we're human, right? We can't do anything about that. You're human. You're not going to turn into Batman, Spider-Man. You're not. You're walking in the flesh. What? Because of that, we don't war after the flesh. Because if you war after the flesh, all you're doing is the same thing everybody else is doing. Okay? Look, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. That means fleshly, human. But mighty through God. What did I say? Mighty to the pulling down of stronghold. That means if it's anything in your mind or anything in your life 
that would keep you from going forward against Satan and winning the battle of devil. If you've got some habit or some attitude or, or, or some hatred or, or some bitterness, whatever it is, you better get rid of that stronghold because that's the place the devil's working in your life and you can't work against him until you throw him out. And so you say, well, it's just a thought. A thought represents an action. What you think you'll do, right? And so he tells us uh, that we need to be armed, and so he gives us our armor in Ephesians 6 and 2 Corinthians 10, he gives us our artillery, okay? Now, thirdly, you had to be trained. In other words, you had to be equipped in the Word. The better you know your Bible, the better equipped you are to fight the battle against the devil. And I don't say any more about that. I could say a lot. Number four, they believed in their leader, Abraham. You have to be willing to follow the captain of your salvation with an undeniable, unswerving loyalty. Hebrews 2.10 makes it clear that he was made perfect through the suffering and he became the captain of our salvation. Now, he puts little captains in every church called pastors to help lead that congregation, but no little pastor can lead a congregation against the devil unless our author and finisher of our faith leads us into battle. He is the one who is our mighty one, right? Number five, they were united. They were united in love. Even though they didn't like what Lot was doing, they loved it. They were united in purpose. Even though they didn't want to go to battle, they had to go to battle because a brother was in danger. And they were united because there was a cause, like David said. Is there not a cause? Yeah. There was a reason to go to battle. You pick your battles careful, amen? So 318 of them took up arms for action, they were trained in arms for action. And so that leads us now to the second section. And, and I'm, I'm going to move on quickly at the very beginning. Then I'm going to slow down and talk to you about a subject that most folks are absolutely, totally confused about, okay? Let's look. The second thing, there was the war in verses 1 through 16. There's the worship in verse 17 through 20. After every triumph, there's a temptation. Remember that. When Jesus was baptized, what did the next thing happen to him? He was tempted, right? Forty days. You think you're going to be any better? No, no, no. No, because the devil's going to think you easy prey, and I'm easy prey. And so he comes after us. So when you win a victory, hey, praise God, I'm saved today. And the devil said, I'm fixing to get going right now. And he gets going on that safe room, Right? He wants to stop their testimony, mess up their life, ruin their marriage, uh, mess up their kids. He wants to mess up their church. He wants to do everything he can, and he'll come against you. So when you have a triumph, there will be temptation, and you have to be prepared for that temptation, and the only way to do it is to worship. I'm not talking about congregational worship. We all do that too. I'm talking about personal times of worship. Now, I'm going to explain that to you. When you look at this, it is the times of worship that prepare us for the test of the world. 
That's why Adam prayed while, just a while ago that um, he needs this to be refreshed each week. Why do you come on Wednesday night? Other churches, not everybody does it. A lot of places don't come on Wednesday night. I grew up, I didn't know what Wednesday night services was. Nobody came and nobody would come. Everybody was working on Wednesday night. You didn't go Wednesday night. But I found a church with some pretty girls in it and they had Wednesday night service. Well, our church started Wednesday night service and we had five. Preacher and his wife, that's six. Now five. Preacher and his wife, my mom. And I said, I don't want to go to this mess. I don't want to be here. But Mama drugged me by the hair of the head, what little I had, up that old gravel road to the church. We walked to church. And I thought, God, fiber pastor a church. It'll never be like this. I'll quit before to be like this. I will not pastor a church like this. And, of course, I didn't think about pastoring anyway at that time. But when God called me to preach, I remembered those days. And I said, I don't want to go back there. You know why? Because when we come to church, we worship. You could live any way you wanted to. And you could teach a Sunday school class. You could get up and give a testimony. You could sing in the choir. You could do anything you wanted to, and you could live purely like the devil all week long, and nobody cared come Sunday. And the preacher would greet you on the steps with a cigarette in his hand and while he'd been drinking the week before. I'm telling you the truth. As our church. I didn't want that kind of thing, and the reason why, and when I come to know Christ, I had a problem with temptations, and you do too. And so I needed some times of worship that prepared me for the test I was about to face. Before you're ready for to face Sodom's love, you must face the Savior's love. You know with me? You, you can't face Sodom without being with Jesus. So this victory of war came because of his worship. Your victory over your ancient foe will be because of your worship. Salem, the king, is a type of Jesus. Sodom, the king, is a type of Satan. And before we meet Sodom, the king, we need to meet Jesus, the Savior. All right, so let's look at this title. He's called Melchizedek. I told you last week I covered this, and we'll go back and do it, but I do want you to look at it. Melchizedek means king of righteousness, or the word comes from the, um, the, the Hebrew word of um, king of what's right. King of what's right. That's how it would read if we were uh, translating it into our modern English, the king of what's right. And so that's what he was, the king of righteousness, right? To be right with God. That's what it means. And then Salem, which means where Jerusalem comes from, as I told you, means peace. You hear the word shalom, shalom, right? I have a little thing hanging in my office that I got in Israel. It said, shalom, y'all. You know, that's, they, they knew hillbillies was coming, so they was ready for us. So, um, I just want you to understand that righteousness and peace go together. You can't have peace unless you have righteousness. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. That's what Psalm said. Y'all didn't hear that. 
Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. You can want peace all you want to. You can pray for peace all you want to. You can cry for peace all you want to. You can be broke. Until you live right, you'll never have peace. The kingdom of righteousness must kiss peace. Have you got that? Okay. All right, that's, that's his title. Secondly, I want you to look at his title. Melchizedek is a deliberate, he was, he's kind of deliberately introduced like he is, like he is off the pages of, of Genesis 15 so he could remain a gorgeous and wonderful type of the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, he takes up arms for action, and, and, and that's what God does too. He has a group of trained men, that's what God does too in his church. And uh, he also had a plan, uh, the element of surprise, and, and that's how that we are going to win the victory over the devil. We're never surprised about what he's going to do. We're always ready, right? So uh, he, he, he took up arms for that. And this worship we see in title. Secondly, we see it in type. Melchizedek was a type of Jesus Christ, king of righteousness. Who is that? Who, is, who do we call the king of righteousness? Jesus Christ, right? So this Old Testament Melchizedek, who was a human, I'm going to show you that. He's not some mystic. He don't just appear from out of the sky somewhere or float around and appear. No, he's a human being. Nobody knows anything about him. And God uses him on the scene as a beautiful type. Verse 18 I think makes that clear. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. Did you get that? He's the priest of the what? Okay, Most High God. All right. So that means when he comes with that wine and that bread, listen to what happened. That is a type of Christ and Calvary. Abraham acknowledges him instantly as the type of Jesus. He sees him that way. Would we have seen him that way? He saw him immediately. When he saw what he had in his hands, wine and bread, he knew exactly what that meant. You see, don't think those Old Testament people were a bunch of idiots. They knew a whole lot about the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, Galatians even says that the, Bible, that the gospel was preached unto Abraham. I know some of this less feldic bunch runs around, you know, and says, see, there's two or three gospels. There's not two or three gospels. Abraham got saved by faith just like you and I do. Faith before Calvary, believing it was going to be a Calvary, and faith after Calvary, believing it had been a Calvary. That's how we're saved. That's the only difference. One's pre-Calvary, one's post-Calvary. I didn't mean to get off on that, but y'all did it. It's y'all's fault, okay? Now, look, what was it we're to see about Jesus in Melchizedek, Okay? Now, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you a question. I don't want you to answer it verbally, but I want you to answer it in your mind. What was it 
that God wanted us to see in Melchizedek since we know he's a type of Jesus Christ. What were we to see about Melchizedek to see Jesus in him? First of all, I'm going to answer it for you, flesh. God became, okay, here we have a man, Melchizedek, pictures the humanity of our priest in heaven, and yet covers his only begotten son status. That's why if you look at Hebrews chapter 4, and, and, and you might want to go to Hebrews and hold your finger there because you might not be able to find it the rest of the night. Hebrews chapter 4, because I, 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 we're going there and stay a while after a while. All right, Hebrews chapter 4, look at verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. Who is he? Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our profession, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but listen to this, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. So because he beat the devil every time, because he never gave into the flesh one second. He always was filled with the Holy Ghost. Look what happened. Let us, because of that, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace in time of need. So God says, first thing I want you to know about Melchizedek is there's coming a Messiah. There's coming a Savior, and he will be God in the flesh. He gives us that there. And by the way, Abraham found help in Melchizedek. I mean, he's coming back tired, beat up, worn from his, this battle. He's not used to being a battler. He's used to being a farmer. He's getting old. He's coming back. And this man in, he, in chapter 7 and verse 3 of Hebrews had no recorded ancestry. Let, let me just go back there and show you this about Melchizedek. You still got your finger in Hebrews? Okay, all right. Let's go. Let's go back over here to chapter 7, verse number 3. I think that's right. All right, this is what it says about Melchizedek. First of all, it describes him just like we've been describing him. He's the king of peace. He's the king of Salem. That means if you're going to have peace, you've got to be right. Now, look, he is without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God. How can anybody say he's not a type? Melchizedek has to be a type if he bruises the Bible. Right? Because he said very clearly that he, Jesus was going to be just like him. You say, does that mean he didn't have a father? No. Does that mean he didn't have a mother? No. Does that mean he was, didn't have a beginning of days and ending of days? No, he did. But no one knew it, and no one knew when it was, and so he could be used as a type because no one knew his beginning, and no one knew his ending, and no one knew his mother, and no one knew his father, and no one knew where he came from, and nobody knew where he went. 
I said, you ain't getting that. I'm just telling you, you ain't excited about that at all. But you ought to be excited because because of that, when you're tempted, he knows exactly what to do for you. And you know he knows what to do. To me, that's a blessing. I can get in the flesh easy. Don't y'all look at me pious and spiritual. Y'all can get in flesh easy too, eh? Yeah, I've seen some of you in the flesh. And I've heard about some of you being in the flesh. I know you can get in the flesh. We all can get in the flesh. Listen, we, I mean, real quick, the devil knows how to push that button. Next thing you know, we are doing what we ought not to be doing, saying what we ought not to be saying, living like we ought not to be living. Am I telling the truth? I am. And listen, that don't mean you have to be a, a, a going to the bars. Uh, that, don't, that don't mean any, anything like that. That don't mean that, you ha- that you're somewhere and you, you decide you're going to marry a man. It doesn't have anything to do with that kind of stuff. That's part of it. But there's thousands of sins we do that puts us in the flesh. Flesh gets a hold to us, drags us out there. And, and so he, I, I'm excited that Jesus came. That's okay. I handled that once. You handle it now. It's going to take a lot to get y'all fired up tonight, I'll tell you that. Only got 10, 10, 15 more minutes, so maybe you won't go to sleep. Hang in there. Punch a, punch a person beside him and say, wake up, okay? Just wake up. Okay. He, he, he was the type because of the flesh. Secondly, he was the type because of a forerunner. And we see that. Again, in Hebrews chapter 6. Y'all, have you got Hebrews 6? Okay. Y'all, y'all, didn't, y'all didn't move your finger, did you? Been hurting, hadn't it? That rheumatoid arthritis was giving you a fit. All right. Let's look at Hebrews 6, verse 19. Have you got it? Well, let me get it. Which hope, which hope, we have as an anchor of the soul. You see, when a boat is anchored, it can't leave that spot. It's sitting right there. Now, I'm talking about in normal conditions, right? Now, look, both sure and steadfast. Those sailors can go in town and get drunk, don't have to worry about their boat, Right? Those people can go and have a stake, not worry about their boat. Those people can go home to their families and not worry about the boat. Why? It's anchored. And how's it anchored? Sure, steadfast. And look, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner for us, even Jesus, made a high priest forever after the order of, of Aaron. I didn't read that right, did I? Well, why don't we want to try to put words in God's mouth that he didn't put there? You see, there was only one Melchizedek, and he didn't come from Aaron. Look what the Scripture says. A high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Had nothing to do with the Aaronic priesthood 
because the Aaronic priesthood was a Jewish priesthood. So he was our forerunner. Look what he says. He went in with the veil. You know what the veil was? It was that big, huge curtain. I've taught it on Wednesday nights. It's been a few years back. But it, it, it was so powerful. They said you could tie two oxen to each side of it, and they could not pull it apart. And there it was. It was about this thick that they had worked on and worked. It was the most, it, it, was, it, was, it was unbelievably thick. And yet the Bible said when God started shaking everything up and the, and the, and the skies turned black and Jesus said, it is finished. All of a sudden, the Bible said that veil rent from the top to the bottom. Why from the top? God did it. God did it. If it, if it had been man done, it had been from the bottom to the top. But God did it. And so thank God that he was our forerunner. I'm glad he could go in even before I could get in. But on that day, he made it possible for all of us to go in. Somebody say amen again. That's all right. Okay. So what we need to do and how Abraham was helped here is he need to enter the presence of God before he met Sodom's king. And how'd that happen? Melchizedek, the priest, had met God, had a tremendous, wonderful, glorious experience with God. He comes and says, wait a minute. Come here, Abraham. You're not ready to go down there and meet the king of Sodom. We need to let you in on this glorified experience your father and I had. And there the priest and King Melchizedek, whose names was not supposed to be put together, but they did because Jesus was put together. And the Bible had him a great experience of worship. He experienced the presence of God. And he's ready now to go back to war. Oh, not physical war, but spiritual war. He was a Forerunner, he was forever. Look, at, uh, we already talked about Hebrews 5, 6 and Hebrew, ver, Hebrews 5, verse 7 through 10. He was forever. He was talking about eternal salvation. How in the world could you ever tell anybody or you could ever even say yourself that you used to be saved? You wasn't saved if you used to be. You'd still be saved if you were saved. Man, how in the world could you say, well, I, I, I think I'm saved. At least, you know, I don't know. I hope I make it. How can you say that when you have a priest who's gone in for you, put the blood on the mercy seat, grabbed you up because of your faith, and saved you and washed you in the blood and said, how in the world could you ever say that my salvation was temporary when I had clearly said that I am forever. The only way we could lose our salvation that if God would cease to be forever. And I got news for you, he's not. Woo! Don't you like that? Well, I've got, I don't know where I, your verses is up there, but you can read them, uh, Hebrews 6 and 7. In fact, it do you well just to read Hebrews 5 all the way through chapter 9. But like Melchizedek, there's no record of his end uh, at all. And when we face temptation, and we will when we meet Sodom's king, 
with, with me. I'll be through in five minutes. I know it's time to go get the kids. We face temptation by Sodom's king. And when we do, we need to know that we're not on the edge or the eve of destruction, but we're on the fringe of eternity. Okay? When you're tempted to doubt, don't, because your salvation's forever. When you're tempted to give in, don't, because you are forever. When you're tempted to quit, don't, because your salvation's forever. When you're tempted to sin, don't, because your salvation's forever. And you need to every day meet this priest, this kingly priest. As priest, he has power with men. As king, he has power with God. He not only cleanses us, he commands us. He washes us for the day. First thing I do when I get up every morning, I have to have a shower. I can't take a shower at night, get up in the next morning without feeling greasy and nasty, Glenn. I just can't. I got to have me a shower. I don't care if it's coming from a bucket, dirty water. I don't care. I got to have a shower before I go to bed. And I'm going to take a shower. If I get to a hotel somewhere at 2 o'clock in the morning, I'm going to take me a shower. And I'm going to keep whoever's beside me up, you know, because I'm going to turn the water up real loud. I'm just going to glug, 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 glug as it goes down. They're going to say, who's that idiot? 2 o'clock taking a shower. But you see, I take a shower because it makes you feel clean. And so when I go in and meet with my priest every day, he, he says, now you've had a shower. You've confessed, you've talked to me, you've had an experience with me, and you're clean. Now, here's what I want you to do today. And so then he becomes the king, and he tells me in commands what to do. And those of us who love him, obey him. Mm. If I was sitting out there, I'd be saying amen. But third thing we need to know is because of his trust. He was a powerful God who created earth. Verse 18, he calls him the most high God. Now listen, that's the Hebrew word, El Elyon, okay? That's the word, El Elyon. You got it? That word means strong and sovereign. Six, Psalm 62, 11 said, God has spoken once, twice have I heard this, that power belongeth unto God. And then, here's the second, he's the possessing God. He claims the earth. He's the possessor of heaven and earth. It's not our world to do what we want to do. Not only that, he's a protecting God. He delivered them from their enemies. 318 delivered them from their enemies. Listen, our community is full of people going to hell. It's about time 318 of Hillcrest Baptist Church members hit these streets and hit these stores and hit these homes and hit our families and bring them out of captivity. Okay. But he also wants to do it last, and i got to get to this because if not, you won't give nothing Sunday. It's in type because of the tithe. He gave tithes to Melchizedek, not to Aaron, not to anybody in Levitical priesthood, not, not to anyone else that happened to be in the camp who was some spiritual person. No, he didn't do that at all. He gave tithes to Melchizedek who represented who? 
Who? Good night. I mean, I taught y'all nothing tonight. Melchizedek is a type of? And so when he gave his tithes, who was he giving them to? Woo, I'm going to preach it three times. Chris said I preached it twice last week. I think he just went to sleep the other time and just got woke up at the right time, but I'm not sure. But I want to show you something. A tithe means this. In that day, it meant the pick of the spoil. The best of whatever they brought back. The cream of the crop, as we used to say, right? The rightful response to worship and a blessed heart is giving. You want to be blessed? You give. You tithe. If I only got $10 this week, give God one, and that nine will work better for you. See, number one, this was not under law. So when somebody says, I don't believe in tithing, that was under the law. You tell them, you must not read your Bible. It wasn't under the law. Moses didn't command it. Nobody had commanded it. But he knew when you worship God, what you're supposed to do. Does that not tell you something? People who reject that attitude of the tithe means they don't worship much. Mm. Mm. He was a man that we don't know had ever been taught about the tithe. But the moment he saw the one who had been in the blessed presence of the glory of God and he had that experience, first thing he did was give him tithes. So if you don't worship much, you won't give much. The natural response to worship is giving. Here it is. Before the law, Abraham tithed. You tell that to the folks who want to fuss. Tithing is not a legalistic act, but it's an act of worship. What is my tithe? There's somebody says, is, you know, what is my tithe? Well, let me tell you this. It's not a tip. Okay. It's not what's left over. It's the first fruits. It's before Uncle Sam gets his. Oh, I always thought that was after I bought my groceries and paid my bills. And, you know, that means you've got $12 left. So you're going to tithe $1.20. No, don't mean that. If you'll give God what's first, he'll take care of you all the way to the last. So, God had blessed Abraham. It was only natural for Abraham to tithe. I had not seen that before. I had never seen the fact that the action of worship, the attitude of worship means its natural response is to give. 